All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Build Amazing Things Securely. I'm Laura Bell Main, and I am really excited today because I am, it's not just a guest, but it's a friend that I have on the show today. Um, and he'll deny this now because that's what you do when you're a friend on the internet. Um, but uh, I'm joined today by Paul McCarty, who is CEO and founder at SecureStack. Um, hi, Paul. How are you doing? Hey, Laura. How's it going? I am good. So, Paul. <laughs> The audience don't know you as well as I do. And so instead of butchering your intro, as is traditional, who are you as a human, Paul? Yeah, thanks. Um, my name is Paul McCarty. I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, I have lived in um, Australia full time, which is where my company, SecureStack, is headquartered since 2016. Um, the company is, is entirely in Australia. Um, my background is I have helped people build application infrastructure at scale for years, for years. Um, done a lot of compliance work. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll get into that later. Uh, but beyond that, um, during the, the 2000s, I, um, I, I took a break from, from IT and, and InfoSec and tried to be a professional snowboarder. And I lived in, in New Zealand for a brief period of time. Um, in 2008. Um, and that was fun. Uh, that was good times. My wife and I traveled the world snowboarding. Uh, but then we started having kids in 2015. And as you know, um, you know, that that changes your life. So we um, were bunkered down on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. Uh, for those of us in the global audience who don't know, that's a terrible, horrible place. It's just full of white, sandy beaches and beautiful nature. And it's a horrible place. We, we, we feel your suffering, Paul. We have um, lots, of, lots of drop bears. <laughs> don't troll our audience that's just mean right okay um, but to the point of it so as you know folks on this podcast we're here to talk about the amazing technology that's being built in the world and how we can work security through it um, to make sure that that technology sticks around a while so that it can do what it does without hurting people data or systems now Paul you've got a bit of a different perspective because you've been around this a long time you've been you know in the compliance space, you've been, you know, a practitioner. So I'm going to take this a little bit differently. Um, and I'm going to ask you for your, your dream, if you will, what technology do you think the world needs if it's going to really build this amazing future that we want to have? All right. <clears throat> so I have a team of software engineers. We're building a SaaS platform. What I, if I could say, heavens give me the most amazing thing in the oh. world what i would want oh. what i would want is i'd want the ability to be able to write deploy software and not have to worry about any security not have to worry and for everything inside of that to, to be visible to me and for me to understand the relationship between those things and for me to be able just to say push to prod that's what i would that's what I would love. That's a pretty that's cool my, dream. I like that tech. dream. Mm. Um, it's not quite an ice cream dream, but it's a pretty cool dream. Okay, so we, we don't have this right now, do we, Paul? There's nothing no. that does this. There's no magic no. boxes. So God, we don't no. believe in magic boxes on this this podcast. So um, well, I thought that's the point. I thought we, we, we're, we're well, speculating about magic budget boxes. Oh, yeah, we're inventing them in our heads, but they don't actually exist. There's no black box with a little red button on it. Um, right, so... What do we need, though, if we were going to try and pull this together? What what technology is needed? What do we need to be able to do to actually make that dream that you've you've created there reality? 
And where are the problems in it? Where's the challenges? Yeah, let's let's start with like what is in software. So, you know, my engineers are are writing software every day, um, and they're they're using new libraries and new frameworks and new versions of those libraries and new versions mm-hmm. of those frameworks and new SaaS platforms. And it'd be the the first thing is it'd be nice to be able to understand all of that and be able to look at it visually and understand how all those things relate to each other. And then if there's doesn't a doesn't my package file do that? Can I just like? <laughs> well, that's like that's like saying, "Hey, I'm talking about the whole car, and I'm looking at um, an inventory list for what went into the wheel." Right? It describes the wheel really well, and how the wheel works, and how the dependencies inside the wheel all kind of interrelate. But it doesn't describe how the whole car works, wow. or how those dependencies work. And so that's what my magic box is about today. Is about I. You know, as building software and the metaphor here, the software that we're building and the applications our customers consume, that is the car. And right now there is no package manifest for the whole thing. So what kind of things would need to be on this manifest? So, you know, if it's not just the listed, you know, the polite packages we chose to, hey, just install off the Internet, what needs to go in there, Paul? Well, so I think we're building a cloud kind of centric application. I don't want to say cloud native because who knows what that is, but it's a cloud centric application. It's built and it's deployed in AWS. It consumes a bunch of AWS services. So in addition to having the inventory of, of the wheel, which is like the, the software that we wrote ourselves and the open source libraries and all that stuff, I would love to also know what's in the AWS stuff, right? What, what's the inventory for that? And how do those things relate? Because the dependencies and all those AWS services they get complicated. Some of those things are public. Some of those things are not. Some of those things can be public. Some of those things cannot. It's just, um, it's great, but also comes with its its own set of challenges. Mm, So would this be something that Amazon would have to provide? Yeah, I don't think they, I don't think they'll ever be able to provide that or any other cloud provider. And the reason I don't think they, they would be able to provide that is because imagine when you go to Taco Bell and you get like a Nobody goes to Taco Bell, Paul. No, that's just me. Don't go to Taco Bell. I don't go to Taco Bell. Even the ones in Australia, which are, you know, I hear marginally better than the ones in the U.S. Anyhow, let's just imagine Taco Bell. There's only like eight ingredients at Taco Bell, right? It's cheese, it's refried beans, it's tortillas, yada yada, right? The problem is that Taco Bell can could tell you maybe what's in each one of those ingredients, but when you put all of that stuff together, right, and you make it your own way, and you 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 cook it in your own way. That's something different. And and the applications that we're building using AWS services or GCP or or Azure, any of the cloud providers, we're consuming those in our own way. We might be consuming one service. We might be consuming 100 services. And the way that we configure that is kind of up to us. And that's where this whole, like, you know, shared responsibility comes into, which a lot of people say, but they don't really kind of internalize what that means. That means that if you consume this stuff, the way you put it together, the way you make your burrito, that's on you. That's entirely on you. Now, that's really interesting. So what we're doing is we're taking it from the idea that it's just about the components that you've used, your libraries and your frameworks and and whatever, but it's also the combinations in which you've applied those and how you've configured those. And now I'm I'm a bit of a data nerd, as most people who've listened to this podcast will know. like my, my brain's gone to permutation maths here, and that's not a good place to be at 9 a.m. Um, that's a lot of permutations when you think about how much configurability there is in and customization there is in any of the technologies you're using in your stack. Yeah, 100%. I, like the, the number of permutations, to your point, 
is, I mean, it's, it's vast. Like even something as simple as you put a JavaScript app, a front end app in an S3 bucket. And then your S3 bucket is the origin for the CDN and AWS, right? This is a really, really common pattern. Many people use that. We use that. It's very, very common. The thing is, a lot of people don't realize the way you share that origin <laughs> from the S3 bucket to the CloudFront distribution, you're supposed to use something called an origin access ID, which says, hey, this S3 bucket can still be private, but CloudFront can use it in a special internal way. Well, guess what? Nobody does that, right? Oh. And that's just one permutation of a service that has been built that, I mean, you can consume it in a way that's secure, but people don't know about that, so they don't. They make a burrito that's got something bad in it, something that's insecure in it. Well, uh, this this is this is sad. It's nine a.m. and I'm thinking about sad burritos. Um, but let's let's take the magic from this. Yeah. So so this this magic box is looking increasingly unlikely, right? Um, how do we do this? A, a girl can hope, right? So uh, absolutely, the, I, I can I can hope for this thing. Uh, the I think that this this future thing that tells us what's in our software and whether it's secure or not is possible. It just means that we have to um, bring visibility to it using some set of tools. And, you know, that's still something that a lot of startups and organizations are working on. So bring that visibility first, then understanding it, and then being able to kind of, you know, pick apart the relationships and whether those things are secure or not. I think it's doable. I, I mean, that's, that's my hope at least. So let's talk about this a bit more because I'm really interested in the relationships between the technologies we build into other things, right? Um, because none of us want to or have the time to build everything from scratch, and that would actually be pretty dangerous anyway. Um, but not all things are made equal. You know, not all software is of the same quality. Not all software has the same support and, and life kind of lifespan as as other pieces. So. In this quest to understand and, you know, I guess control in a way what we're building our software out of, does that mean that we should only be using these big name software players um, because that would be more secure? Is that, or is that a naive lesson for us to take from it? No, I, I don't think that. I, I think the reality is that the, the big orgs, you know, they're making their own burrito and we're assuming that that burrito <laughs> We're seven layers of burritos deep here. Pull up, pull up. <laughs> right. That, that it's that it's um, that it's not going to make us sick. But I think, as we've seen with some of the um, you know the the things, the security um, notices from Microsoft and some others, not to call anybody out. You know, this has been a big problem across you know all of our all of our vendors. But uh, these big organizations have problems too. And this is something I want to I want to double click on something you said, which is, I think right now in the space, there's a lot of emphasis on open source and specifically open source has been kind of made to be the bad guy, right? Like, oh, you need to, there's a lot of vendors saying, you know, open source is your, is, you know, your primary concern. And the reality is that, you know, our SaaS platform and yours and everybody else's has a ton of open source in it most of which is probably more secure because it's got a bunch of people working in the open together um, than some of this closed source stuff that does. So the other thing that I want in this magic thing that we're talking about is 
to get rid of the vendor noise and be able to just say, this is how you actually discern objectively what's in an application, all the things, the cloud stuff and the software, what it's consuming, how those things are interrelated. Um, and if those things you know are, are secure or not, there, there, there's, um, it's, it's more than just an open source issue. Mm. And I think that we, there is a, there's a pattern, an anti-pattern, if you will, that we as a community do fall into from time to time um, between that closed and open source. Like you see it when people have an application penetration tested. Um, so, you know, you apply, em, employ somebody and an organization to come and test it as if a hacker was using it. Now, that's a subject for another episode in and of itself, and we'll talk to some folk about that. But in that area, there's a concept of, you know, doing things as a, a closed test, so you can't see what the code is underneath and you have to test it blind as an attacker would, or an open test where you can read the code and you can really get into, oh, how does this work, and then test from there. And in the old days, there used to be a lot of kind of shade thrown for those folks who did open tests because, well, you know, that's You're cheating. cheating. Yeah. Um, and so we see the same in the open source community. Oh, you know, it's open source. It's just some random people on the internet doing stuff. How do you know they're any good? And so we trust the brands, you know, the marketing teams essentially have done a very good job with software companies telling us, hey, we do a good job. Now, I know that I've written bad code in my life. Um, Paul, I'm sure you've written bad code too. No, so, no, no, never. <laughs> Just never, not, never no, no, Paul. Code here. Okay, no, no bad code here. Um, and so if we uh, go I'm with that assumption. Right now, Laura. <laughs> yeah, probably, knowing you. Um, so if we go with the assumption that any code can be bad code and that that doesn't happen because you're a bad person, just happens, reasons happen, yeah. um, then there's no more, no logical reason to assume that one is better or worse than the other. It's just, you know, we, we have these bias built into how we think about these things. Now, I want to pull up something that um, makes what you're asking for actually even more important, because it turns out that the US President uh, Biden uh, put out an executive order. What did his yeah. executive order say, Paul? What does he want in the world? Yeah, well, the executive order says a couple of things, but the one, the, the main thing that that um, that you know people are talking about is the need for something called a software bill of materials. Um, and the software bill of materials, it gets back to that package manifest that you and I were talking about five or ten minutes ago. Basically, it's it's more than a package manifest. It's supposed to be a document that describes all the things, all the software components inside of an application. And the idea there is that, you know, like a tin of soup or a can of soup for our American audience, you can look on the ingredients list and you can see what's in it. And you say, hey, that thing, I'm allergic to that thing, right? Or that thing's bad, so I'm not going to consume that. The idea with the EO, the executive order, is that um, software manufacturers, people building applications that sell into the government kind of ecosystem have to provide that. Um, and that's kind of kicked off a whole series of things that have come after that. Um, so it's, it's definitely kind of, um, it, it's kind of, um, it's been, it's been an event for, for our industry um, and kicked off a lot of conversations that people hadn't ever had before. Mm, I think the thing that surprised me when I started digging into this is I've never been around the manufacturing space much. Um, it's just not been my world, but it turns out the bill of materials have been around for a very long time. 
you know, the idea that if you sold a machine or a thing to a government organization, you would have to provide the bill of materials. And that was a list of all of the component parts that that was made of and the source of those parts, what they were, what they were made from in turn. Um, and so we use that in the physical world to understand manufacturing, to understand risk, to understand the supply chain if, if things break. There's lots of good reasons for doing that. And so what we're trying to do is adapt control systems from the physical space into our digital space as we're becoming so reliant on software as the infrastructure uh, of much of our life now. So we've got a government asking for it. We want a magic box that does it. But the magic box doesn't exist right now. So if we were going to get started with this, Paul, how would you approach this if you really wanted to get started understanding what your burrito was made of? I'm not going to continue this analogy. I just can't do it. Um, but if we were looking at what our software was made of, Paul, uh, and we really wanted to build our own little magic box for the day, how could somebody get started with that? Yeah, I think I think it's important as we start talking about this to, to understand that the, the metaphor of the, the bill of materials from the physical space is good because it helps us understand it, but it also doesn't really, it, it, when you stretch it to software, creating software and applications, it doesn't fit as well because the, the software and the, the applications we're building are, are being built all the time, constantly. And that machine that you built and you send across the country on a semi-truck, that was built once, you know what went into it, and then you shipped it. Software isn't like that. We're, you know, some of our customers are, are building and deploying like 80 times a day. Um, and so that means that the process has to be a lot more real time um, that you're building these bill of materials. And so I think that's the first thing we have to understand is that the bill of materials is not something you do once a year or once a quarter. It's something that you do every single time, every single time that you build and deploy that application. Um, it sounds like hard work, Paul. Tell me it's not going to be hard work. Well, that's what the magic box does. The magic box is supposed to like do this for us, right? Like, I mean, we're waving our wand, right? Like the, the magic box is supposed to do that. And the reality is that luckily right now there are products out there that are starting or solutions out there that are starting to automate the creation of bill of materials. The problem is most of the time those bill of materials right now are not really comprehensive. They don't, they're not really including all the stuff that's inside the application. So it includes part of it, that, that wheel that we were talking about a while ago, it'll, it'll include a really descriptive part of the wheel, but what we shipped is a car uh, or the software metaphor version of a car. So that's, that's our challenge right now, Laura. All right. So we don't have a tool. There are people working on it. So let's start at the beginning. So we could do this, you know, maybe we can't do it manually every time we commit. That's, that's a lot of work. But what I'm hearing is that this needs to be a dynamic process. Now, I'm a big believer that security tools at their root aren't just security tools, they're productivity tools. They help you do something you could do by hand that would be very, very painful, but you could do in less time and with less pain. So think of it as like the robot army that's getting the boring bits out of your world. So we would need to then go look at all of our, our code, what we're using, uh, what other things would we need to be listing off here? So after yes. I talked about that one, is there anything else? Yeah, like the, you know, we, customers can sign up in our application and use and, and onboard themselves and we use Stripe, right? So, hey, Stripe, that's a pretty important component, right? Like if you're using Braintree or PayPal or any other kind of payment processor, that should probably be in there. If you're pulling data from a third-party API, 
that should probably be in there. If you're consuming any kind of SaaS product or anything as part of the local requirements for building that platform, like a specific IDE structure or a specific, you know, kind of directory structure, that should be in there. Basically, all the things should be in this magic box that, it, that if you were to take any of those things away, the whole thing doesn't work, right? Just like if in a car, there's all kinds of places around the car. You can pull something out and the whole thing doesn't work. That's what we need to be. That's what we need to be putting into that that magic box. So it's a lot of stuff, and that's why you know that's why up until this point nobody's been doing it, and that's why it's like my ah. Yeah, and I think so. Let's give our audience some practical steps that they can do with this. So this is an important thing. It's an important thing for yourself because you know you've got to protect this thing. You're building this amazing technology. You're going to change the world in some way, and. Doing security in it isn't about, you know, whether you're going to do your thing. It's about surviving. It's about resilience and being prepared to keep this thing happy and alive for as long as it needs to do its purpose in the world. So if you're in the, the, you know, the manual school world of this and all you can do is do it once a month, do it once a month, but stop writing the stuff down. Start with your package mm-hmm. files, build out from there, your integrations, your third party things, as Paul's been saying here. Now, um, Paul, you won't bring it up because you're a really, really good-hearted and honest person, but I know that your tool uh, that you've been building has some capability in it to help with this. So is this something that our audience, if they wanted to experiment with this Mm. and see what that could look like, is there a way that they can do that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the reality is like like all good founders, I saw a problem, which is that I didn't have this thing and I'm building to to solve for that problem. So yeah, absolutely. SecureStack is, you know, we're building SecureStack to provide this to our customers. Um, and um, absolutely, our, you know, if you want to check it out, you can go to securestack.com. We've got some cool interactive um, demos that you can get to at securestack.com slash demo. Um, and, and I'm also, I'm out there in the open source community kind of advocating for this and helping build out there in the open source community so people can understand that this is something that we can tackle and it is something that gives our customers value. So yeah, 100%, check it out, securestack.com. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to be clear with the audience. I, I very much avoid vendor pitches on this, um, and I do call them out when they're there. But um, what impresses me about Paul and his work is that he cares very deeply about this space, and he has a number of documents that he's published up on GitHub that you can go and dig into. Um, so uh, we'll put some links in the show notes. So if you want to read some of the things that Paul's been putting together, and I think we need to be thinking about how how we build software and, and the number of components that um are built into it because you know if there's a problem with any one of those parts then the overall system that we've built is going to have issues and so the more complex that picture is um, the harder it is for us to track that manually so what do we think the future of this looks like Paul do we think this is a stepping stone to something else or well I, I think I think this part of the world is kind of evolving quickly um, you know we talk about things like software composition, which is that manifest in software supply chain and and um, bill materials. I, I think ultimately the value that it provides to me as a business owner that I can give to my customers, just like all of the people that are listening, is that we need to understand what's inside of that, the application that we're building. So we need awareness, we need visibility, and we need assurance that those things inside of it are, are secure and are playing nice. Um, so I call that in, in the magic box, application awareness or application composition awareness. Um, just trying to simplify it. Like, 
you know, that's really ultimately what we need. We need to know what's in it and is it good for us? Yeah. And I think there's, there's a, an unspoken thread through this. Um, we talked about it with the open source versus closed source and proprietary things versus the free things. And it's not that anything is good or bad. This process is non-judgmental. It's not here to say, hey, you were using this library and perhaps you should use this library instead. It's about saying, I am here right now. This is what my software is made of. And I think just starting by knowing where you are is a really strong foundation to build any sort of security on top of. 100%. Now, you've, you've been doing security for a long time, Paul. Um, if you were, you know, at the start of your adventure, you're in the software space, you're building something cool, outside of our bill of material stuff that we've talked about today, are there any other tips you would give our audience for getting their foundations set in uh, secure development or understanding how to do security as somebody who actually your primary focus is building code? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the biggest thing I would say is that, you know, there's been this huge you know, systemic change and, and migration to the cloud, right? We love it. It's fast. It's easy to deploy. The I think the biggest thing I would say is that we just need to understand how that's different than the way that we built and deployed stuff and the infrastructure we used to use inside of this data center with a big firewall or set of firewalls around it. Just those challenges there with the, the, the migration to the cloud. I think that's something that we, as a, as an industry and, and me individually, you know, that you need to understand better how it's different and how you account for that difference. So, you know, putting my devil's advocate hat on a little bit here, um, me and you, Paul, we're a little older than we were once. Mm. And um, we see the differences because, well, we used the older technologies. They were, you know, how we built back in ye olde days. Um, what about our audience who are a little younger at the start of our career who may not have experienced life before Kubernetes, for example? <laughs> What's the best way for them to get started? Is it Are we suggesting that they go back and learn the old school ways? Or how does it work? Maybe we don't have an answer because we're old. Maybe we'll talk to some young people too. But what do you think? I'm going to walk backwards in the snow up up a hill for seven miles. Um, the, the, I don't know if that joke is still relevant. Um, the, <laughs> I, I think, do they need to learn how to build stuff the old way? No, but it helps to understand what the difference is, right? The The reality is, the, and just and without going into too much detail, the main difference is that the way we used to build things was that we put them in, inside of a, a data center that had this hard outer shell, which was the firewall and everything inside of it was really squishy and soft, right. And, and pretty insecure. And that was okay because the hard outer shell mostly protected what the soft kind of squishy inner bits, right. But the, in the cloud, there is no hard outer shell, right. Everything has to have, you have to build a hard outer shell against around everything. I mean, Cognito and DynamoDB and I'm picking on AWS, but the, all those things, you know, most of them can be public endpoints and can be just out there on the internet. Um, so one of the challenges I think that, that teams that are new to building applications is just understanding how, you know, building in a, a public app, it comes with a set of challenges in AWS and the, in the public cloud, you know, uh, you have to, you have to solve for, for those uh, challenges around building stuff that is all of those bits or most of those bits, many of those bits are, are public facing. Mm. That's that's a big difference between the way you and I used to build stuff. 
So I, I think if I was to break this down, let's let's kind of give you some homework, if you will, audience. I know you'll mm. forgive me for that because, you know, that's what I do. Um, we need to remember that every component that we build from now and that we used to build from has different configuration. Um, and those configurations and how we put them together, as we've discussed in this episode, are going to change the overall security of what you're building. Now, in our old days, there was nice big squishy, well, a squishy middle and a hard border. Now, at SafeStack, we call that armadillo security, where you have hard armor plates in the middle, but a really tickly tummy. Um, and you have to make sure that nobody gets to the tummy. Um, yeah, my analogies are not as strong as burrito stuff. Um, for our modern, uh, more cloud-based applications, you don't just have one. You have many, many things to protect. So let's start with having no assumptions about how they work by default. Let's ask questions about how we protect each thing we build from, because what we're learning in today's episode is that our software is built from many, many technologies for different reasons. And each of those can impact our overall security. And so it's our responsibility as engineers to know what's in there and then take the steps to protect them. So, Paul, well, it has been a lovely chat. Oh, it's my job. I, I take amazing guests and then I summarize. I'm like chief summarizer until ChatGPT comes along and does it for me. Um, so it's been lovely to chat with you today, Paul. Um, we're going to post some links in the show notes. So if you want to catch up with Paul, where can we follow you, Paul, as a human? What's the best way to follow you on the line? Well, I don't do the bird site anymore. And that's a separate oh, that's conversation. Okay. Um, yeah. I used to be pretty spicy in the bird site. But anyhow, um, LinkedIn, I, I post a lot of content on LinkedIn. So I'd say that's probably the best place. Um, awesome. You can find me, Paul McCarty. Fabulous. Right. Well, that draws our time to a close. Thank you so much for coming on, Paul. It's been a delight to chat. And I'm definitely going to be going to look at what's built into my ugly software now um, and see what I can do to make sure every little component is supposed to be there and that I'm doing the best to secure it. Go, go check your burrito. Oh, shush, shush. <laughs> Goodbye, folks. See you, buddy.